Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. 1 through 4 have to do with the servant of Jehovah and his mission. And we talked about the first part applying to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, we spoke about Jesus and it said, uh, well, let me read in Matthew 12 and we'll just bring you up to date. Matthew 12 verses uh, 15 through 21. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known, that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, referring to Jesus, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. This shows that he didn't come to get the headlines, and he didn't try to get attention from everyone. The only attention he wanted was people to hear what he had to say. It says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. You know, I've heard preachers preach on that, and then all they want to do is get the attention contrary to what they profess. And, you know, the only attention we need is people to hear the Word, and to make ourselves known, and to, to for publicity purposes... Some people say, let's do this for publicity. I'm not in the publicity realm. I want to preach to the people that we can get out to church by visitation, by witnessing, in whatever way we can get them out to church and Sunday school and be a faithful minister of the Lord. And that's where we should come from. And as far as making a big show, we don't need that. Then we find that... uh, That's the contents of Isaiah 42. Hold your place in Isaiah chapter 42. And then we spoke of verse 5. And by the way, verses 5 through 9 shows his future work among the nations. Verses 5 through 9. And we spoke about in verse 5 where it says, Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, the great creator of all things, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. So it speaks of God the great creator and creating the heavens and the earth as if you and I would make an object with our hands. We might make a little something with wood or the ladies might make something out of weaving or crochet or, or sewing or whatever. And that little thing you've created... You feel like you have done that. Well, God created the heavens and the earth. He spread them out. Look at His creation. And look at the wonder and the majesty and the sovereignty of all of God's creation. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. It says there's no nation, there's no place on the earth where His voice is not heard. So even in heathen lands, the voice of creation speaks aloud. And then we know the voice of His Word is powerful. And uh, we have that later on. But what I want you to see is that in the last part of that verse, it says, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. And we talked in our last lesson about God giving breath. 
He gives the breath of life or life to, to all beast creation. But He gives man a living soul. He has a spirit. And man is different than beast in that he has a spirit that goes to be with God when he uh, ceases to be in this life. And the spirit wherewith God, uh, whereby God can deal with him in a spiritual way while he's here upon this earth. So he's different than beast creation. And God makes that distinction in creation too. Now then verse 7. No, verse 6 rather. Verse 6, and we said verses 5 through 9 shows His future work among the nations. He says, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. Now he's going to give Christ for a light of the Gentiles. The Bible speaks of Him being the one that was to be a light for the Gentiles. It was clear from the beginning of God's covenant relationship with Israel that they were to be a priestly family. In fact, in Exodus 19 and verse 6, let me read a verse of Scripture for you. It says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But he said in that covenant, that was for the people of the Jews for Israel of old. And then it says, for light of the Gentiles. Look at verse 6. Hold your place where we're studying and look right at it. For light of the Gentiles. Now this verse is quoted and applied to Jesus Christ by Simeon under inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he saw baby Jesus. In Luke chapter 2 verse 32, let me read it for you. It says this, A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of my people of thy people Israel. Let's read the whole context there. Drop back to verse 26, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is Luke 2, verse 26. Six Now 27. And he came by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now here's what he said. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. In other words, he was ready to die now, ready to go on. According to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. Now look, verse 32. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In Luke 1 verse 79 it was predicted. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. That's 1 verse 79. So Jesus is to be that light that is to lighten the Gentiles. And He was that light. And He gave that light. Back in Isaiah 42. So God made a covenant not only with Israel of old when He chose Israel as a nation. And He said that they would be... He made a covenant with them to be a holy nation and a priestly family. But He made a covenant with us through Christ, the Promised One, the Messiah, so that when Jesus came, He would be not only the glory of His people Israel, He would still maintain that 
association, but he would be a light to lighten the Gentiles so that he would be for the salvation of all the world. By the way, all of you and I, most of us are not, suppose most of us are Gentiles, but he's the salvation of Jews and Gentiles. And we're thankful that he extended his blessings to all who were unworthy, all heathen nations, ungodly nations, all nations besides his chosen earthly people, Israel. And then in verse 7, notice what he's going to do. He says to open the blind eyes, to bring out of out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. He has authority to to bring out those that are imprisoned, that sit in darkness out of the prison house, to open blind eyes. John chapter nine verse thirty nine would show us that the spiritually blind he came to open their eyes. Remember, after he had healed the blind man that was blind even from his birth. And in verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I am coming to this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Now what did he say? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. They, they were so blind that they could not see that they were sinners as well. Remember, they were accusing the man that was born blind. And they said, Who did sin, this man or his parents? And they wanted to know just exactly where this blindness came from. And Jesus reversed it and He said, You're the blind ones, really. He says, Because you say that we can see and we understand... But he says, therefore, your sin remains, and they remain in blindness. In other words, the blind are spiritually afflicted. And these that, were, that Isaiah was talking about were spiritually in prison of unbelief. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, it says, To open the, their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Paul's commission was to the Gentile world. Let me read verse 20, uh, verse 16 through 18 in the 26th chapter of Acts. It says, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee... Uh, to make thee a minister and a witness both of the things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people. The people usually were spoken of as the Jews. God's people. The people. And from the Gentiles. See, the people first. The Jews first. And when it says the people, usually it's referring to the people of the Jews. Now, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee. God said He was sending Paul to the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And what was He to do? To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan. They were in Satan's prison. From the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are, that are, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's the commission Paul had. By the way, it's not much different than the commission you and I as a church have. 
we're to preach the gospel. The Bible says the gospel is to the Jew first. And it's been preached to them. And Paul said at one time, seeing you account yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. What did he say? Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. So they, they wouldn't have it. And many will not have it today. They're still in blindness as a nation and as a people. Even though they're God's chosen people, they're in that holy land. And over there with all the conflict they're in, in blindness as a whole. Sure, there's a few converted and turned to God. But they're the minority. They're, in fact, they're few among many, if you want to put it that way. But God's purpose then was to make a new covenant through Christ. And He was telling of what He was going to do in the future. Hold your place in Isaiah 42. To open the blind eyes, verse 7, bring out of the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. You know, in Jesus' first sermon that He preached in Luke chapter 4, He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Listen. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. By the way, His mission is still the same and He does it through His Word and His ministry. He will heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You know, when I read that passage of Scripture, I'm reminded when I was in the seminary, Miss Edmondson, our English teacher, and she sat under J. Frank Norris in the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth for years. And we were fortunate enough to have her as our English teacher. And she wrote most of the workbooks for the whole state of Texas. The English workbooks where they had blank spaces to fill in and so on about so thick for the school system. But anyway, to make a long story short, she used to tell us as young preachers, she says, when you get up to preach, remember, always remember, that there may be some out there that are broken hearted. There may be some out there that are in need of the message that you preach. There may be some out there that, that feel everything that Jesus was speaking about here. To heal the broken hearted. What does he say? To preach deliverance to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind. And to set at liberty them that are bruised. And then what? To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. doesn't make any difference whether it's a Wednesday night or Sunday night or Sunday morning or during the week. If you have a problem, the Lord is always there. And I'm glad it's every day because I've had them during the week sometimes, haven't you? Amen. If it's just on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, I'd miss out on a lot of opportunities to ask God's help. But it's all time. And so let me say to you here tonight... and. I'm just saying this because I realize that what she said is very much true, that a lot of times there are people that have a broken heart or a heavy heart about different things. And I want you to know that the church is praying for you, that we care about you, that God Almighty especially cares about you. And day or night, 24 hours a day, He's always on the job. The Bible says, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So just trust Him and, and turn to Him in any hour of need. And I know we all need to do that. We don't set hours that we pray. We pray morning, noon, and night. That's good. That's habitual prayer. But you can pray in the middle of the night. You can pray at 2 o'clock in the morning. You can pray early in the morning hours. You can pray when you're 
when you wake up in in the bed and in in your heart is heavy. So it doesn't make any difference. God's always on the job. Well, back to this now. Isaiah 42 and verse 8 now. He says, I'm the Lord. That is my name. I'm the Lord. That is my name. This is a formula that you that uh, was used by God to introduce His covenant with Israel. In Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, let me read it for you. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, it says this, And God spake all these words, saying, Now listen, verse 2, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then He gives us the commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, and so on, all the commandments of the law. So he introduces himself. And this is the name by which he is introduced in the Old Testament. I am the Lord. And my glory, he says, I will not give to another. My glory will I not give to another. He will not... Neither my praise to graven images. God is a jealous God and He will not give His glory to any kind of an idol or an image. And by the way, there are more idols than you imagine in this world today. Anyone but the Lord Himself in the place of Him is an idol. Whether it's a saint on this earth or one in heaven, it's an idol. Whether it's an idol of wood and stone, whether it's an idol of your own imagination, whether it's covetousness. Paul says covetousness is idolatry. You see, there are more idols than men imagine. They say, well, I'm not an idolater, surely. I don't build a wooden image here or a stone image or graven image. Well, you don't have to. It has to do with your imagination. It has to do with what that which you idolize in your mind. Don't put anything up as an idol in your mind. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither neither my praise to graven images. In verse 9, he speaks of uh, his ability to predict things of the future and uh, also the things of the past that he has uh, fulfilled. Behold, the former things are come to pass. What God said in the past has come to pass. See, not every, never a word that he spoke has failed. You read in the book of Joshua, it says not one word, and in the Kings as well, that the Lord spoke has ever failed. And there's never a word to this day that has failed. And people say, well, you know, God didn't do what He said He'd do concerning certain things. Well, God only responds to men's actions in a way of mercy and grace. Just like God said to Noah, to Jonah, he said, go into Nineveh and say, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And he said, well, God didn't destroy Nineveh. Well, but, but Nineveh met the condition to where they didn't merit the destruction that was predicted. And so God was merciful. See, the last thing God wants to do is carry out what he will do if you don't repent. But what, what he will do if you do repent will change the way his action is towards you. It won't change his mind. He would still destroy uh, the city if they hadn't repented. And he would still be merciful had, had they repented and they did. God is a merciful God. So, new things, the old things he had kept, the former things, the prophecies of Isaiah had already been fulfilled, or the collective history of the Israelite 
prophets whose message had had been realized. He had fulfilled those. And then he says something else there. Look, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. New things I declare. This was referring to what God was about to do. In fact, he told that he was about to restore Jerusalem. And he also had spoken of in this very chapter how that he would send the Messiah. And that was many hundreds of years later that this was fulfilled. And right here it's predicted of his servant. In fact, we read in Matthew chapter 12 where the words of the first words of this chapter refer to who? To the Messiah. And applied to Jesus. And he predicted that, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. And that's referred to Jesus. So he had already predicted that. In fact, he predicted it in several places. And you get to the 53rd. All of this is anticipating the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And when you get to there, what does it say? He's going to come forth as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. When we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. The Bible says He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces before Him. The Bible says He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by His stripes we are healed. And then He goes on to say, All we like sheep have gone astray, every one to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him on Christ, the iniquity of us all, made to meet on Him, or laid on Him, all of our sins. And by the way, if you'll notice the way that's written, it says, He is wounded for our transgression. He is bruised. It doesn't say He shall be. So it, it brings it into the present tense in many ways. And then it says He was. And then it says He shall be. He shall bear their iniquities. All right? All of the 53rd of Isaiah comes into prominence as we look at what God has predicted that He will do. Verse 9, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I will I tell you of them. And God has told of many things. He told of the birth of Christ 700 years before it ever happened, back in the 6th and 7th chapter, the 7th and, uh, chapter of uh, Isaiah. Remember? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. It says, Unto you, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is Isaiah 7.14. And then you find all of these things predicted of Christ, His birth, His being a servant, His birth, Isaiah 7.14, His servanthood, Isaiah 42, and I'm just taking a few chapters. His sacrifice, Isaiah 53, his coming kingdom and glory all through the book. We've hit on it time and again. And we'll even hit on it now in this chapter. So all the way through you find these things true. Of his prediction of Jesus. And it all came to pass. You know it tells us in the New Testament. Peter says that these things that, that uh, the prophets spoke of. They desired to look into. They desired to understand. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which is in them did signify. Now listen, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, this is First Peter chapter 1, and the glory that should follow. They desired to see and to understand what they predicted. So that even these prophets, 
They gave the Word as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and many times they didn't fully understand what they were saying. God just said, write it down and predict it, and they said, okay. They did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which is in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So they were searching and wanting to know. And then once in a while, you and I say, well, I don't understand it. Well, maybe there's a lot of things they didn't understand too. You're not alone, are you? You're not alone if you didn't understand it. You go back and you go on further and read the book of Ezekiel and see if that didn't make your mind whirl. Remember Ezekiel? Saw the wheel within a wheel. And it's like a gyroscope. It turned every way. Top of it touched the heaven. The other part touched the earth. What does it mean? Maybe in the circumstances of life that go every direction. Heaven is concerned about what happens down here on the earth. It was full of eyes. That speaks of wisdom and understanding. And so on and so forth. So there's a lot of things that maybe we don't understand. And maybe it made his head kind of spin too. But God's word is mighty. And God's word is mysterious in some ways, but it's plain in other ways. We're to wonder at it as we wonder at himself. Okay, look at verse 10. Verses 10 through 13, we see the, the future song of redemption glory. Verses 10 through 13, look at this. The future songs of redemption glory. It says, Sing unto the Lord a new song. And is praised from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. And he goes on with his song through verse 13. Let's read through verse 13. Let the wilderness and the cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar doth inhabit, let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare His praise in the islands or the isles. The, the Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against His enemies. So what's he saying here? Sing unto the Lord, verse 10, a new song. A new song. What God accomplishes calls for a new song to be sung as it begins to reign in Jerusalem in the future. Remember in the Old Testament, Moses and Miriam and all the Israelites, they sang a new song after what? After crossing the Red Sea and Miriam struck up a song and they all begin to sing. The horse and his rider as he cast down and God has brought us through the sea and they were rejoicing because of their deliverance. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and verse 9, it says they sung a new song. And what was that song? It was a song that hast redeemed us by thy blood out of every nation and kindred and people and tongue. And then made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 5, beginning with verse 9, several verses in that area, show us the redemption song that you and I will sing in glory after this life is over. And after God takes His people home to be with Him. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 show us the future of God's people after the church age. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 deal with the church age. And Revelation chapter 4 begins uh, the rapture and what God's people are going to experience in heaven before the tribulation breaks out upon this earth. And you find in the fourth chapter the 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 
throne that was set in heaven and a rainbow round about the throne, signifying that even in judgment, His throne is set for judgment, the Bible tells us. But with a rainbow round about the throne, even in judgment, He will remember what? Mercy, because that is a symbol of God's covenant with man that He would not do something anymore to the earth, flood it again and bring a flood of waters to destroy the earth. And you see Christ there on that throne. And then in Revelation chapter 5, you sing that song of redemption. That's where God's people will be. That's where you and I will be. We'll be among those thousands and millions that will sing the redemption song. And by the way, I got a question for those that think that the rapture will not happen till after the tribulation. We got that false teaching going around now. Even in fundamental ranks, pardon me, but it is, that the rapture won't take place, that God's people won't be taken up until after that tribulation takes place. Well, listen, who in the world are these people in Revelation chapter 5 if it doesn't take place before then? Revelation chapter 6 shows us the beginning of that tribulation, doesn't it? The very beginning of it. When the first seal is opened. And who's found worthy to open that seal? None but the Lord Himself. And when He does open that seal, His people are already with Him in, in heaven. And then the tribulation takes place. So who are these people that are singing a song of redemption in heaven that have been caught up hither, as it said in Revelation chapter 4, and there was a... Uh, all the representatives of 24 elders round about the throne, casting down their crowns at the Savior's feet. Who are these people anyway? Where'd they come from? Mars or some planet? They came from this earth to heaven. So that does away with this idea that these people get that the rapture won't take place till after the tribulation period. That the saints of God will have to go through the tribulation. Not so. The Bible just doesn't teach that, friends. And we've got this... Uh, group, there's a supposed to be fundamental Baptist preachers out in California, and you've heard me speak of them before. Rasmussen's one of them. That's talking about it won't take place till after the rapture, until in fact, I mean, till after the tribulation. In fact, the way some of them put it, till after the millennium. So that's more ridiculous yet, isn't it? I mean, how in the world would you have a millennium of God's? Uh, peaceful reign upon this earth without people there. To put it in the middle of the millennium or after that is absolutely ridiculous. Beloved, let me just say this. I don't know, maybe off the subject, but be careful today of what you hear about the second coming of Christ. A man can write a book. He can give you a, a sermon. He can give you essays and all kinds of thesis on what it, it is about the second coming of Christ. And the way he jumbles his figures around and jumbles his doctrines around will make perfectly good sense if you read it. You'll say, well, my, that stands to reason. But when you check it out, there's some simple rules you've got to go by to really understand it. First of all, Jesus said, I'm going to come again, didn't he? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Then the Bible tells us that when he comes again, the dead in Christ shall rise, and the living believers shall be caught up with them to meet the Lord where? On the earth? No, in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So that means the rapture, doesn't it? And then it tells us in Revelation chapter 19 that the Lord is coming back to this earth to bring judgment. That's pretty simple. And it tells us when He comes that the saints of heaven are going to come with Him. And if they come with Him, they already had to be there some way. 
So there's some simple things. Don't try to complicate matters when it's not necessary. Or you can go back and study all the prophets and jumble them around and say this one applies to this and the mark of the beast and Daniel's prophecies and get it all messed up. Now then all of them are meaningful if you keep them right. Daniel's prophecies are wonderful if you'll take them into consideration of the simple facts and truths of the future. But when you start jumbling around and trying to figure out days and months and years and use your own speculative ideas about uh, calculating all these figures, you can get into a lot of trouble. And you can end up not knowing anything about Christ's coming. The next thing on the agenda for you and I in this day and age of grace is the Lord's coming for His own and the resurrection of the dead in Christ. That's the next thing we look for. You say, well, I'm looking for this fellow over there to rise up and this to happen in the common market and this other to happen and something else to happen. I'm not looking. It doesn't say we're to look for that. It says look for the Lord, doesn't it? Where did it tell you to look for that? I don't know where it said to look for that. The Bible says, watch, for the Son of Man cometh in an hour in which you know not. Be prepared. He says, look. Look toward me. He says, occupy till I come. He says, be ready and be prepared. Our incentive is to wait for the Lord, not to worry about all these odds and ends of prophecy. And it doesn't mean they're not important, beloved. It means sometimes we get sidetracked. You know, the Bible says the eyes of a fool are in the ends of the earth, but wisdom is before him that hath understanding. It's before Him. It's not that complicated. It's right there at hand if you'll look at the simple facts. But if you want to complicate it, you can. And a lot of people do. So you just make up your mind what you're going to believe. Jesus said, I'm going to come again. Acts chapter 1 says, This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come, that means personally and visibly, in like manner, He was taken up into heaven, as you have seen Him go into heaven. He's going to come the same way. Well, back to this. Where were we? Singing this new song is a song of redemption. Whatever God accomplishes calls for a new song. And it will be sung in, as He begins His reign in Jerusalem, just as it was sung when He delivered the children of Israel out of their bondage. And all of nature will respond as well as His as the people from the the remotest part of the earth. And we're told of those remote parts in this passage of Scripture. Notice it speaks of uh, the Arabian desert, Kedar, between Palestine and Mesopotamia, and Selah, referring to Petra. They say this refers to uh, Petra, the rock. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the tops of mountains. That's verse 11. In the same region, south of the Dead Sea, the mountains. The people living in these desolate areas will also respond in joyful song. And that's all in the future. These verses discuss God's restraint of His wrath and activity, verses 13 through 16, as a mighty warrior. But in order to deliver Israel, He must also judge His enemies. Look at, beginning with verse uh, 13. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. In order to deliver his people of old, he had to judge his enemies. And he had for a long time held his peace. Look at verse 14. I have long time holding my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. 
In verses 14 through 17, you see a manifestation of God's power. We'll give you this and then our time will be gone. A manifestation of His power. He says, I have long time holding my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. In other words, He's about to do different. He held His peace, but the time has come to act. And His judgment would come upon the enemies of Israel. And it would result in making their lands like the country of Israel during the exile. He says, I will make waste mountains and hills, verse 15, and dry up all their herbs, and I will make the rivers, islands, and I will dry up the pools, and I will bring the blind by the way that they knew not. I will lead them in the paths that they have not known. I will make the darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and not forsake them. What Notice how many times, I have, verse 14, I have, verse 14, now will I, and then it says, I will, in verse 14. There's four times. Verse 15, I will make, verse 15 again, I will make, verse 15 again, and I will dry up the pools. Verse 16, and I will bring, verse 16, I will lead, verse 16, I will make darkness light, verse 16, these things will I do unto them and not forsake them. This shows you God's mighty power in doing all that He predicts He will do. When God says, I will, that's what He does. You and I might say, I will, and we we can't carry it out, but God has power to do what He will. You and I might, we may not show up. We may may be inconvenienced. We may be uh, lacking. We may be lacking in wisdom or power. But God is always there, and He has power to do what He says He will do, and He'll carry it out. In the verse 17 says, They shall be turned back and they shall be greatly ashamed, confounded, or ashamed or confounded, that trust in graven images, that say to the molten images, Ye are our gods. They're going to be uh, ashamed and they're going to be confused. Well, we'll have to wait and pick up with verse 18.